SegaBits presents Sega Talk, a podcast talking all things with your hosts, George and Barry. Welcome to the 30th anniversary of, of Sonic T. Hedgehog. Uh, that could have gone better. I'm Barry, and with me is George. The Freedom Fighter, George. <laughs> the Freedom Fighter, George. And we are talking about Sonic the Hedgehog Archie Comics on this episode of Sega Talk, episode 72. This is our first episode of Sonic's 30th anniversary month of June. Um... Before we get into that, I do want to tell you guys we have like a 20-minute Sega News Bits where we talk all about that big Sonic Central event that went on, so you can check that out. Um, if you're like, oh, they're not talking about uh, Sonic Rangers uh, <laughs> and all that. Um, but we're jumping way back. Before Rangers, they were fighting for freedom. And you can fight for us over on Patreon if you support us at any level. You get to your memories read out at the end of the episode. Um, at other tiers, you get the episode like a week early. You get to pick episodes. This one is not a pick. This is our pick. But um, George, what was your what was our last pick? What was that one? It was uh, Mad World. What was it? Literally last episode. Yeah. Last episode was Mad World, and um, it's interesting because you know I've I've been saying for the past few episodes, there's always a little link between them. So the link I'm going to find, I think from now on, I'm going to try to find a connective tissue. So Mad World was very comic booky, kind of Sin City inspired. And we're talking about comic books on this episode. Um, we're talking about Sonic the Hedgehog comic books, like I mentioned, specifically the mainline Archie comics. There are a ton of these. So, so many that the Guinness Book of World Records cites the Archie Sonic comics as the longest-running video game-inspired comic, and Archie claims that is the longest-running, continuously-published, licensed comic series of all time, which is pretty insane. And I was like trying to think of other ones that might come close. I'm thinking maybe Walt Disney comics, but from what I know about them, they switched publishers a lot. They would keep the numbers, but like... They've been through maybe four or five publishers, but here with Archie, like, kicking off with, what was it, like, 1990... I actually don't think I have the number. Oh, yeah, 1992, when they started working on them, um, through to, man, what was it, 2017 or something, when they, yeah. when they ended? That is a hell of a long run. And they had nearly 300 mainline comics, plus specials, spinoffs, miniseries, and crossovers, and... Honestly, that's like a lot to cover. We're not covering all of that on this episode. We are only talking about the original four-issue miniseries and the first 38 issues, which kind of encapsulates the early years. And I did want to touch on, you know, like the eras. So I do want to do more of these episodes. However, I, I, you know, I don't want to make them like a... I've seen videos online where they go, in issue number three, Sonic and Sally, blah, blah, blah. Moving on, issue four, like going one by one. We're not doing that. Yeah. Um, no. We're breaking it down by eras. So the next era would be Ken Penders, which was 39 to 159. Ian Flynn, which That's was considered... 160 to 251. What's that? 
I was going to say, Ken Penders is usually considered the golden era, right, of Archie comics. Am I right about that one? No? I don't know about that. Well, But that's why I wanted to just cover these early years, because, like, Ian Flynn did 160 to 251. There was a reboot with 252 to 299, and then Penders had his own Knuckles series, and then there were a lot of spinoffs and specials. I feel like this early, early era really gets forgotten, because you ask any... You know, longtime Sonic fan, and they go, "Oh, Ken Penders, Ian Flynn." They don't talk about the guy who kicked it all off, which is—you can see his name right here, Michael Gallagher—and he's the one that really, like, we should be thanking for even making this a, the success that it was, so that it could can, continue on under Ken and Ian. And I've got some really cool behind-the-scenes stories, but before we get to that, I want to ask you, George. Um, did you ever read these comics when they released, and do you have any history with the series? I know you're a big comic guy, but I don't know if you're a kid's comic guy. Uh, you know, uh, it's one of the things growing up, you know, I could only get a few comic books when I was a kid, because they were like four bucks. Mm-hmm. I mean, two bucks, sometimes three bucks. And um, so I would usually always get superhero comics, because I always felt like if you're going to buy a comic book and you want to read about Superman or whatever... I, I, I right. can only get a few, so I would never get licensed stuff because I would always see the adventures. You could see Sonic on TV. You could play the video games. So to me, that was already enough for me. So I would never pick up licensed comics. I know there's a lot of people that do. That was just never my thing. And right. as for this, um, I've read them online before, like one issue here, one issue there. Usually ones that are memed on the internet. I, it was like, oh, I, ha- I have to read this <laughs> issue. I want to see what this is all about. Um, right. As far as my whole, like, I don't really have that much of a history, but I kind of do know just being on forums and around the Sonic fandom, all the Sally stuff, the Acorn Kingdom, all that stuff kind of pops up. So you kind of know it, even though you don't read, I've never grew up with it or read it. Um, I know you're more of the right. fan of the comic books. So it's obviously why you right. picked this. Um, so I want to know what your history with the comic book is and like, did you actually read it when it was coming out or did you try to pick up a few of the issues growing up? Well, so uh, as far as my history with comics, so my dad was a big collector of Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge comics. So comic books were kind of a part of my early life. Um, for my own interest, I really liked picking up comics that were based off of like cartoons I would watch. So I would get a lot of the, um... Disney Afternoon comics. I remember having a full run of Chippendale Rescue Rangers, which was actually like really well written and illustrated. And you know, those Disney comics in that era, in the late '80s and early '90s, they were definitely a step above of a lot of the other licensed comics that were around at the time. Like, just like with the video games, how you'd play like Aladdin, and it seemed like you were playing a cartoon. You really felt like you were like reading still frames from episodes you've never seen before. So that would really excite me. Um, And then as for Sonic comics, like I was really into Sonic the Hedgehog as a video game. Uh, In the past, I talked about how I got it, you know, within a few months of release. Um, And then it was just like there, you know, like I wasn't, I don't think a lot of kids were really like Sonic super fans. It was just kind of like the video game you had. And then you'd go about your life and talk about Ninja Turtles and, you know, local sports teams and stuff. Like, it wasn't, wasn't like, taking over your life like a lot of franchises do now. Um, To me, it wasn't even a franchise. It was just this video game. And uh, it must have been the summer of 1990, 
2002, I want to say, um, when I was going on a road trip to South Dakota or North Dakota, out out west from Minnesota, and we stopped at a like gas station or something that had a magazine section, and I distinctly remember seeing this Sonic the Hedgehog comic, and I have it here. Let me find it. So I saw this exact, like this actual issue, um, in the newspaper. How much is that I mean, worth that, right now? Pops. You know what? Let's do a little eBay dig. I was going to save this, but I think eBay digs are fun to do. So, um, Sonic the Hedgehog number one. You can hear me typing, so it's legitimate. This is. It's not great. Oh, this is someone selling a digital collection. So here I see oh. it. Uh, oh my god. Digital. These are all high res, high res scans. Okay, so here's one selling for fifty eight dollars. Um, wow, it's probably the condition mine's in. Here's one selling for one hundred and seventy five at CGC graded though, uh, for yeah. a nine point four. Mine though, I mean you got to consider. I bought this on a road trip. Like look at the, it's good quality. I mean, what kind? Like, look at that what spine. Kind of kid? Dude, what kind of kid were you? Like, I have none of the comics growing up because, like, I don't know. I, w- I would, like, try to trace it, trace the comics, yeah. the issues. Um, I think the only yeah. one that I survived was, like, one from 99, and it's, like, a Green Arrow issue. And it's all beat up, and I still right. have it. That's, like, the only one that I've ever survived with me. I, I used to be I terrible. Have to think it's be- I have to think it's because my dad was a collector himself, and so he would give me, like, his comic supplies to put the bags in. Now, this story I'm telling, though, this is my best recollection of it, because there is another issue, number one, which we're going to talk about pretty quick here, which you can see here. And that's like, wait a minute, why is there first issue and first issue? So I, the story changes. Sometimes this is the issue I found. Sometimes this is the issue. I'm pretty sure this was the issue, because what happened was when I got home, I was like, well, I want to get these. And there's a subscription uh card or form like you can mail in and I did that and they started sending me I think they sent me the like the ongoing issues and I was like well I gotta catch up and I think it just became like a mishmash so I would have like issue one from the main series which is this one but then I would get issue two of the mini series but then I'd see that there was another issue two and I was so confused as a kid it probably took me a good six months to wrap my head around that Finally, I got into a groove. I was collecting the main series and then the, uh, the I guess, mini-series here. And from then on, I collected up to, I want to say, like, issue 110 or something like that, which is well into 2001. So I was a subscriber for, like, a good nine years, which is a long time. And... um what really made me drop out of it was that I really liked Sonic Adventure 1 and 2's storyline, and I did not like that the comics decided not to adapt uh, Sonic Adventure 2. That was kind of... Oh. And, and looking back, it makes me realize, too, that it was really on Ken Penders, because he was turning it into his own, his own comic to the point where it was like he was putting stuff that wasn't from the games, but instead from, like what he wanted to do. And we've discussed this before where people would use Sonic as a as a like vessel for their own projects. And sometimes it works, but a lot of the times it just reeks of them like being desperate. I don't know. Do you see this ever? Like I kind of felt that in Sonic Boom almost where it was like 
we want to make a humorous kids show, and I guess we'll use Sonic as the vehicle for it. I mean, maybe I'm being uh, cynical. Yeah. What do you think? I see it all the time, especially with modern comics, too. Like, um, yeah. it would be like a random issue you'll get, and it's somebody complaining about social media, and it's like, really? Do comic like like you're superman gonna be complaining about people talking crap about him and on on twitter like let's get let's get real here he's supposed to be better than any human ever but somehow he has the faults of some writer that hates twitter you know right i've seen this before right. it's both ways you know and it's like yeah. uh it's a little weird or i hate when they bring a comic book character that's like a young character but they they mm-hmm. write him like an old man because the guy is, that's writing is sixty years old and he hates technology. So Nightwing hates technology <laughs> too, and it's like, dude, he's twenty two years old. What the hell? Yeah, right. Like it, it's a slippery slope because sometimes you'll be influenced by modern things going on, but you're true to the characters. Like, I mean, this isn't a comic book, but in the Dark Knight, cell phone technology and the idea of people's um, personal data is not a Batman thing, but they turned it into that by him using that sonar. Remember that? And, like, uh, mm-hmm. Fox was, like, telling him, you can't do this, I'll quit. Like, clearly that now, you know, right this... I think even today Apple's, like, putting out new software to make it harder to track people. Um, so that's relevant, but it works. Whereas, like, Ken Penders was like, I really want to do a, like, Nazi space story, and I'm going to use Sonic to tell that. And at the time, I was like, I just want Shadow, I just want Rouge the Bat, like, I want an adaptation of the comic, of the games in the comics. Anyway, we'll we'll get into that when we get into those later issues in future episodes. I did want to talk briefly about Superman. I also have another Superman comic here, and I have a Detective Comics here, and there's another one, it's Justice League Europe, I want to say. And what's important about these issues is these are some of the earliest published Sonic comics, believe it or not, because inside is... You see that? What the hell? It's a I promotional Sonic the Hedgehog comic inside a Superman, and they did this in four issues for DC. This is a promotional comic that has also appeared in issues of Disney Adventures. Um, it was its own standalone for, I think, Heroes Illustrated magazine, and... That is from 1991, and that is actually something that predates Archie, and that's what became the Fleetway series. So it's not the first time that Sonic was in a comic book. Um, and now that I see this and then and then get into my notes right now, I think I'm going to contradict uh, <laughs> a story I'm going to tell. So that's, that's kind of funny. I'm correcting myself as we go. Um, So I did want to talk about the publisher first. So Archie Comics Publications Incorporated is based out of Pelham, New York. And I know that well because that was kind of like where my subscriptions would come from. Um, I would see these New York addresses a lot. Uh, I even wrote letters to them, so I was well aware of where they were. And they're responsible for the Archie line of comic books, which date all the way back to 1941. The orange-haired Archie Andrews first appeared in Pep Comics number 22 and was actually based off of Mickey Rooney's Andy Hardy films. I don't know if you know who Mickey Rooney is. Do you know who that is? I do not know who that is. Okay, so he was, believe it or not, he was kind of like a heartthrob back in the 40s. Oh, really? If you saw him now, I'm trying to think, 
but he was like an everyday kind of kid where he was like a little bit of a runt like he was kind of short but he was really funny so people liked him I can't really know I can't really think of like a modern day equivalent but I feel like that's kind of the character you see a lot in modern films where it's like it's not a super attractive like buff kid <laughs> you know it's more like your boy next door sort of thing um, and that's who Archie was. And so they had all these different comics, Archie, Betty, Veronica, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, who actually crossovers with Sonic in some comics, which is pretty insane. Um, so, you know, Archie was also responsible for doing other comics. They had superhero comics in 1939 under the name MLJ Magazines. And I think, George, you're going to have to come out right now and admit that you've read Archie and you're actually sitting in a full room of Archie comics right now. I have read Archie, and, I, you know, they were, like, the only comic books they would have, like, everywhere because they were more like little graphic, no, like, novellas or whatever they call them, you know, where they're, like, they look like the little, like, uh, romance magazines or whatever. They're, like, really tiny. <laughs> right. And, right. They, and they used to sell them everywhere. I remember, like... Um, if I would go shopping with my mom as a kid and she would go like to buy food, I would go to the magazine yeah. section and they would have Archie comics there and they usually never had like DC comics or anything like that. It was like the comic books, the superhero comic books stayed in comic book shops it felt like, but Archie was okay to sell yeah. in Walmart or whatever. So I would definitely read Archie comics when uh, I would go food shopping. I'd never buy them. Because I was cheap, but like I would definitely, I have to save up money for the, you know, the video games. But I would definitely read them and uh, yeah. skim through them. The best thing is that they were never really long. Like you could just read an issue and you have a story and you're good to go. And I kind of like that about them. Right, exactly. And there's something really comforting about them. Like I've read quite a few of them too, but oddly enough, I don't own. I own one. I own two issues, um, and they're both like goofy crof- crossovers because. You know, Archie, for a long time, it was just like a, a staple in the newsstands. And then I think probably as around the time Sonic was coming out, they were thinking we need to appeal more to kids, and kids are not into 1940s characters. So they would update Archie with the times. But honestly, like, when you're a kid, are you going to grab Sonic or are you going to grab Archie? And so Archie would do other things, too, like crossover with Ninja Turtles. Um, I think the idea was to see how edgy they could get. So I think Spawn crossed over with Archie. I know um, Punisher, Archie versus Punisher is a thing. So, oh, God. Um, it really, they tried to outdo themselves, and I think Riverdale, the TV show, was kind of their ultimate, where it was like a dark, kind of sexy teen murder mystery show, but set in Riverdale with the Archie characters. And I personally, though, my big uh, kind of... Um, I don't know. I don't want to say guilty pleasure because I just get, I just get pleasure from it. There's no guilt. Where um, uh, both Dennis the Menace comics and um, especially mm. Casper, I really liked Casper and uh, I think his name's Spooky or something. And then Hot Stuff, like all of the Harvey Tunes ones, where it was like these little fat little like kitty creatures. They all look the same, um, but it was just it was so comforting because you could pick up any issue. And you did not feel like you were coming in the middle of like an, a story arc. You were never lost. And honestly, that kind of translates into these early Sonic comics. A lot of one-offs. And I think that's what really defines that early era. Is It wasn't like they were going in and saying, we're going to tell 
a 16-issue arc. Like, nowadays, uh, I'll complain to you about how the IDW Sonic comics are getting boring to me because it's like Sonic dealing with a metal virus for a year and a half. Whereas here, you can go through it like 16 or 20 issues in that time, and you get uh, probably about 60 different stories or 40 different stories because they'll cram two stories in a book. Um, So talking about Archie here, Sonic, of course, he wasn't part of the Archie universe, but like I mentioned, he did cross over with Sabrina, but that's a podcast for another day. I really want to talk about that someday. Um, But instead, Sonic was actually licensed from Sega and released under the Archie Adventure Series imprint. And I'll show that up here if you're watching on video. You can see Archie Adventure Series. And so that, an imprint, is a trade name under which publishers release work. And in this case, the adventure name was meant to differentiate from the more kid or teenager-friendly funny books. Um, Archie Adventure Series titles remained around, uh, released around the time of Sonic included the Adventures of Bayou Billy. Do you ever play that game? It's a Konami game. No, I haven't actually. Good? Yeah, it's uh I don't think it's good because I think there's an angry video game nerd video on it, but it just makes oh. me laugh that Sonic had a comic and then Konami's like, "Well, we're going to give you the Adventures of Bayou Billy," which really didn't last long. Um there's also yeah. a very popular TM Mhm. I was going to say, I mean, I, I know why it didn't last long, because, like, who's going to want that comic book? I would. I don't know. Um, there's also a very popular TMNT Adventures and Mighty Mutanimals line, um, but the Archie Adventure Series imprint actually existed decades prior with 1960s comics that included Adventures of the Fly, Adventures of Jaguar, and Shadow, but not the Shadow from Sonic. And it wasn't until 2014 oh. that Archie actually moved Sonic to the Archie Action imprint, which also included the Mega Man comics. Um, so you're a comic book fan. Do you do you have any favorite imprints of your own? Do you know about this sort of practice in the industry? Yeah, it happens all the time. Um, there's like Miller World, where like an Arthur would get like his own imprint within like Marvel and stuff. Mine probably would be like kind of generic i think vertigo by dc comics is probably you know the guys that did Watchmen and they did you know all the more adult stuff like the sandman uh sandman i think that kind of stuff they kind of changed you know what comic books or at least comic books at that era in the 80s what you know what they were really about you know like more adultish i know we're talking about kid comics but these imprints <laughs> go both ways they, they can let you experiment and they can let you do a lot of different things i think archie did something like this didn't they with their uh where they try to make horror comics or whatever where like the archie characters die and all that or is that just the main series now no you're right there was like an archie horror imprint and i i'm not sure if archie action is still around but they tried to do or at least i i think they still are doing ian flynn fronted um cosmo or something, which is actually based on an older mm. um, license that they carried for a while. I guess they re- they rebooted it with Ian Flynn. Um, my own favorite imprints. I, I mean, I can't really think about many off the top of my head, but I did enjoy. I think they were called Star Comics, which was from um, I think Marvel, and that's what they released a lot of their licensed comics under. There was uh, Ewoks, droids, um, some other characters. 
And uh, actually, writer Michael Gallagher, who was a longtime Archie employee, I think he actually came from that sort of Star Comics um, world. And he, at the time, when he was working with Archie, points to the year July 23rd, 1992, as the day that he learned that Archie Comics had acquired the license to Sonic the Hedgehog. He described it as a hot... Oh, it was described to him as a hot new property. And he was told that Sonic was being developed into a TV series by Deke. Uh, His editor at the time, Daryl Edelman, chose Gallagher as the lead writer for the series because Edelman thought that Gallagher's success as a writer for Marvel's Elf Comics, which was through uh, the Star Comics imprint with Marvel, um, was enough of a success to warrant him working on the Sonic line. The Elf Comics actually ran for three years, which was like a big deal at the time. And I'm sure when they picked him for Sonic, they were like, three years, if we can do that, that's great. Little did they know. Um, you know, that we as adults would be like reporting... Yeah you know, writing blogs about Archie comics as late as like the late 2010s. Um, The two actually went on during the same phone call to discuss Sonic as well as some bad guy named Robotnik. And then Sonic's, he described it as the subsurface love interest, uh, a princess. So I I think we kind of already answered the question I asked here about reading. I was going to ask about reading kids comics, um, but why do you think what what do you think made them so appealing to kids the the archie comics that when they first launched any first, any licensed kid comics i think it's because they did a, a pretty good job usually of like condensing or at least like at least for the sonic the hedgehog series it would be like for some of them, it was like you know the you know like the Donald Duck stuff. It would be like seeing a episode of Donald Duck, but in a comic book form and that you never seen before. So I could see that appeal. But for Sonic, to me, when right. when I watched the TV show or or even even glanced through the comics, to me it was more like it filled things that the video game would never talk about because like there's this world created with Sonic Team. You know that it's it's larger than they show you because it's so condensed. It's just. Sonic, Eggman, and, uh, you know, the boss, or Tails later on in Knuckles, but, like, there's no, like, right. city, there's no other side characters because it's a 16-bit game. So, when you would see this, you could kind of, like, let your imagination run wild, you know? Like, it, was, it kind of felt like peop, adults that were kids writing from, like, okay, this is the video game. Let's add a bunch of, you know, side characters and do all these little things. And I think they did an alright job. I read some of them. You told me to read, you know, I didn't finish them all, but, like, I did <laughs> read some of them. And they did a good job using, using like, little bad guys as a uh, villain for one issue. You know, usually the little bad nicks. So, yeah, I think that's yeah. why they were successful. Yeah, I I would agree with you there. For me, like the big draw for the cartoon shows was that these are like more adventures that take place after the games. Um, There was no real thought of what canon is what or, you know, is Sonic Team in Japan talking to these guys in America making a cartoon? Like really it was all one story to me and the comics just kind of continued that. And what I really liked about the comics too is that they brought together Adventures of Sonic the Hedgehog, which was the weekly, the weekday 
funny cartoon and then the Saturday morning show, which was the much more dramatic one, because you would see characters from both of these actually, you know, in the same stories. Like, you would never see Princess Sally in the cartoons with Scratch and Grounder, but in the comics you would. And so it was almost, it almost felt like the Adventures of Sonic the Hedgehog was a prequel to the Saturday morning show, and, and the comics were just kind of like the in-between story. And it, it was just kind of exciting to see all of that unfolding and then seeing video game references. Um, and in the end, I mean, up until it rebooted with issue 150 or 251, um, the Archie comics were like the ultimate amalgamation of every bit of Sonic canon. And I thought that was really impressive. I mean, it was a mess by that time, but it was still cool. Um, <laughs> the Archie comics actually kicked off, like I mentioned, with issue zero. So if you want to bring that up on screen. Um, and the plan was to have multiple self-contained stories um, in each issue. So typically you would get like a two-parter in the same issue. Um, and while it's unknown to me why this was done, because I mean... You, you would read and it would say like, oh no, what's going to happen? Read on in part two. You turn the page. Part two. Um, I don't know why they did this. My only <laughs> yeah. thought is maybe they could generate like a sort of cliffhanger like commer- like TV would do. But instead of having a commercial, you just have a way to end that part of the story and then pick it up and continue on. Um, I guess nowadays it works because they could republish those in digests and then break it up. So you'd do like... And they actually did this. They would have Sonic Digests, and it would have part one, and then you buy the next uh, like little um, supermarket digest this big, and it would have part two. So it was a nice way to republish things, but at the time, I don't know if that was the plan. Um, Gallagher was uh, said at the time that his direction was to establish the characters quickly through strong exposition and use visuals from the games, which he actually received via a fax machine. Um, he was also told on this conversation that I guess is still going on uh, in July 92 that Scott Shaw was doing the pencils for the comics. Gallagher remarked uh, after the call that he told his dad and his dad, who's a legendary cartoonist, I'm not sure who he was, but uh, let's take his word for it. Um, his dad said, hey, you never know what'll catch on. And so I guess his dad was right. It definitely did catch on. Um, why do you think this direction worked so well for Sonic and comic books to do this sort of like um, strong exposition, game visuals, like little mini bite-sized stories in each issue. Because, I mean, a lot of the fan base and stuff were video gamers and stuff, and we were like, it was a young format, and you have to be quick, like... I understand that now IDW could get away with really long stories and stuff now, like because most people that are buying comic books are people like us. They grew up with Sonic or whatever, or grew up with Mega Man, or grew up with TMNT. You know, IDW does a lot of those, or even the Transformers stuff. But if they did a Transformers comic book in the early '90s and then they had two year-long issues uh, stories, it wouldn't happen. It wouldn't have right. taken off. So I think. You just had to change with your audience, and at the time, Sonic's audience was a young audience, and they did a good job at, uh, you know, condensing their stories for, like you said, it's like part one, part two, and they were in one issue. And there's 
and they usually all the stories usually have an ending by the time you get to the end of the issue. It's not like they're right. they're baiting you to continue buying another issue. Like if all you did was go to a store and you bought one issue, you would have a complete story. While DC Comics, you have to buy one Superman issue, and it's like, wait, what part? I have to buy like a hundred, nine hundred other issues to get the whole story. So at least it felt right, that way. Right. Yeah, Definitely and I would that... say too that. Go on. The the um the the Archie comics actually like grew with the readers too. Which I think is why I stayed with it so long because if these comics continued to have this format into like the early 2000s, I don't even think I would have been with it that long. I, I actually dropped them, like I said, because I just didn't like where the story was going. It wasn't like I was like, oh, these are kids' books. Like they were telling some pretty, like, I don't know, maybe not adult, but definitely like young adult stories at that time. And they just didn't appeal to me personally as a young adult, even though. <laughs> Um, I think that was their intent. And it wasn't really until the Sonic Boom comics came out um, back when, what was that, like 2016 or something, that they revived this format and would do these part one, part two, little mini one-off stories. And I'd love to see them do that again, actually. I'd love to see them uh, do a like class ongoing classic Sonic comic that was more like this, like one-off stories each issue, not having to do with like a 16-issue arc not even think of arcs. Like, you don't need arcs. Throw arcs out the window. Just tell, you know, fun stories that kids are going to like. But then, I don't know, maybe little kids don't want to read about classic Sonic. What do I know? I don't work in the comics industry. Oof. Um, <laughs> so, soon after, Gallagher got a look at the supporting cast from model sheets that were created for the upcoming Deke show... Uh, he also received three pages of character descriptions, locations, and the backstory, which mentioned Knothole, which is Sonic's home, Snively, Robotnik's chief toady, and the SWATBOT enforcers. So if you want to bring the cast up, we can take a look at that. Um, you kids at home with your, your audio podcast, maybe you can just Google search uh, Sonic Sat AM cast. It's a very popular photo of them. Um, so first up, we have Sonic. I think that's, you know, we all know who this is, the main protag of the series. He's able to run at superhuman speed, and he's the only freedom fighter capable of using magical rings called power rings. Sonic has an impatient and headstrong personality, but is also fearless, heroic, and well-meaning. He also mockingly refers to Robotnik as Robutnik, which is peak, peak hilarity, in my opinion. What do you think of Sonic? He's pretty cool, huh? Of course. Mm-hmm. He's probably uh, one of the next up we... top. <laughs> Sorry, go on. No, go, go. I was gonna say. I was gonna say. I wasn't gonna say anything. You continue. Sorry about that. Okay. <laughs> uh, Antoine. So he's like this little fox guy in like a French suit. You can see him there. He's a coyote with a French accent whose awkwardness often places the others in danger and gets him captured. He has some difficulty speaking English, and he has romantic feelings for Princess Sally and attempts to impress her. However, his selfishness hinders his goal. Sonic often teases Antoine over his shortcomings. Then we have Boomer also known as Rotor. He actually had a different name early on in production, and then it changed, I believe, for the TV show, but the old name bled into the comics for a while. He's a walrus and the mechanic of Knothole Village, 
He provides the knothole freedom fighters with useful inventions and accompanies them on infiltrations. And, well, this didn't happen until years, maybe a decade later. Um, I do believe pre-reboot, uh, Ian Flynn intended for Rotor to be an openly gay character, and they never got around to it, or Sega told them no. Um, wow. I, I think there might be some hints in there. I don't know. Like, I think you see his, like, boyfriend or something. Um, but how's that for, for progressive storytelling? The, uh, the talking walrus. <laughs> Is, um, is next up we gay? Like, how is he gay though? He has a backwards hat. Nobody. I mean, he's like Limbiscuit, basically. <laughs> I'm just joking with you, dude. I, you know what's Limp funny Biscuit about that? Tay. Like, oh, that makes sense. That that makes sense now. No, no, I was gonna say I think um, Michael Stipe is gay though. Uh huh. How would you? I mean, how would you feel if they kind of put that in the kids' comic? Like, imagine if they just did Sonic's uh, Archie's. Like, you know what? Yeah, go ahead, do it. And all of a sudden, like, how many parents at the time you think would be really, really, like, oh, upset and offended? Right. right. Yeah, I mean, if we're talking early 90s, a ton of them. If we're talking 2021, none. Um, so it's it's really a matter yeah, of definitely today, timing. definitely no. unfortunately, unfortunately, all these characters outside of Sonic and Tails are not in the comics anymore. So... You know, they they can't even revive these concepts. But, you know, you never know. I, I feel like we'll probably see that. I think we'll probably see openly gay characters in the IDW comics at some point. We might even already see some, and they just haven't touched on that yet. Um, coming up next, we have Sally, a chipmunk who is the rightful princess of Mobotropolis and Sonic's love interest as a str- strategist for the not-whole freedom fighters, she is knowledgeable in the voice of reason. Sally tries to keep Sonic grounded. And she's super popular. There are Sally fan groups all over the internet. Um, you know, my opinion on Sally is she's a fine character. I like that she's quite different from Amy Rose. I also think that people campaigning to have Sally come back, like, it's admirable, but they should also f- realize... This is a character who was going to only exist in a cartoon for a couple years. And thanks to the comics, she existed for nearly 20 years, which is kind of insane, in my opinion. Um, If not more than 20 years, I guess, maybe close to 25. Um, So kind of be happy that she has had such a long history with the franchise. And, you know, never say never. I feel like... IDW can always do a Freedom Fighter event and reintroduce these characters in a new way. But right now, you know, we'll see. Uh, We also have Tails, a young two-tailed fox who idolizes Sonic. While usually left behind in Not not Whole, he proves useful in deadly missions. Um, I, I feel like the comics treated Tails more like in the games than... The TV show did, especially the Saturday morning show where it was like, he's a little kid, he shouldn't go on missions, which always kind of, I didn't enjoy because obviously Sonic and Tails are a team and to suddenly have Tails be like the little kid of the group Mm -hmm. and left behind a lot of the times and Sonic's like concerned about his well-being. Um, I don't know, what what do you think of that dynamic as opposed to how the games are? I like the fact that, like, Tails is part of it, and he's supposed to, like, gain courage, and he finally gains courage. I think Sonic Adventure probably did that the best for him. 
And I think, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not a big fan of the whole, like, uh, he's overly kitty and all that, whatever. I understand it's a cartoon and Dick, or what, is that the company's name? How do you say it? Deke. <laughs> Deke. I didn't want, I, when I was a kid, I was like, hey, it's the, it's the Dick show. Because, um, you know, the, the Deke. Um, so, yeah, yeah I, I would definitely say it's not, I mean, I understand what they were going for. They were trying to show kids, like, lessons during this, these shows where... They wanted to be like, you're, you're too young. Don't go out and hang out with your older brother and uh, run really fast, I guess. So, I don't know. I just don't like that right. characterization of Tails myself. Yeah, I, I was never really a big fan of aging him down. I feel like, though, maybe if the show continued, because, I mean, we've never done a Saturday Morning Sonic episode of Sega Talk, and we will eventually, but in the show... Maybe they wanted to continue on and have him grow into the role and, like, turn into Tails. But you always are kind of, like, risking it when you do that. Like, with the Zack Snyder Superman, um, there, you know, he would say, oh, by the fifth film, mm. he would turn into the Superman we all know. And it's like, but dude, what if you don't get five films? Um, uh, next up, we have yeah. Bunny Rabbot. And Bunny, she is a rabbit with a southern accent. Half of her body was roboticized, leaving her left arm and both legs mechanical. She is skilled in martial arts and wants to be returned to normal. Then we have Mutsky, who is Sonic's dog. <laughs> That's all I have to say about him. Um, uncle Chuck yeah. is Sonic's uncle. He is the, the inventor of the roboticizer before Robotnik stole it. He was roboticized himself and made into one of Robotnik's slaves. Until Sonic restored his memory, he serves as a spy for the Freedom Fighters. And according to Robbie London, who I think worked on The Dick Show, um, he was actually named after a writer and animator, Chuck Menville, who passed away in 1992. Robotnik is a warlord who seeks Mm. to cover Mobius in machinery and transform its population into robotic slaves by roboticizing them. He is chiefly opposed by the Freedom not whole freedom fighters and his obsession is with destroying Sonic is also his downfall. Um, in the Deke version in the Saturday morning one, his real first name is Julian and he adopts the moniker Robotnik after his takeover, um, which is pretty interesting. It's almost like a title, I guess, in the cartoon. Then of course we have the Badniks. you know, we all know them. We all love them. And then, Cluck, who is technically not a badnik from the games, but, you know, there are a lot of chicken characters. Uh, He's a robotic chicken. He's the only creature Robotnik shows affection to. It's almost like his pet. Then we have Snively, Robotnik's assistant and nephew, who is constantly abused by his uncle. Um, And then Swatbots, uh, Robotnik's primary henchmen and foot soldiers, basically the uh, stormtroopers of the show. So what do you think of this Mm. cast? It's a it's an interesting cast. I mean, I, there's some stuff I don't like, like the, the robotic bunny thing. I kind of I'm gonna be honest with you, she's pretty cool. Uh, Princess Sally and the whole <laughs> Acorn Kingdom's a little uh, much for me. I always thought it was weird that like every single time Sonic has like a rewrite or something, they always want to add a princess, like when they or at least a love interest, right? So when they first did the first ship thing, it was supposed to be a human love interest, right? Madonna. Right. This one, it's uh, Princess Sally. Then, obviously, Sonic Team added uh, Amy. And then when they rebooted it, they did Princess Elise. 
And then when we watched the, we did the Sonic OVA episode, there was another girl that, I guess she was flirting with Knuckles, right? She's supposed to be that idol girl, the cat girl. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's just weird that, like, in all of Sonic's history, every single creator, like, in every medium is like, we should give Sonic a love interest. It's been, like, one of the things that, uh, uh, yeah. Princess Sally, I could see her having a bunch of uh, fans. I mean, it's not that surprising, considering, you know, she's one of the Mm -hmm. first females in any media for Sonic. Does she predate Amy? Um, Princess Sally, I believe, does predate Amy because they were developing the Deke show as early in early 1992, and I got—I have to guess—they did not, they were not aware of Sonic CD. Um, when did Sonic CD mm. release? September '93. Like not- so, yeah, most definitely, yeah. Sally predates Amy for sure. Um, interestingly enough, though, uh, she had a different color. She was almost like the Amy Rose pink initially. And if you check out this reprint archive book of the original miniseries that Archie did, uh, there's a joke on the front where it has the three different colors of, of Sally. So there's the, this one's inside the comic of the miniseries. This pink one is, um, so she was blonde at one point, and then she was pink, and then she was brown. And this is again just a sign of mm. uh, Deke, Deke sending like model sheets, but they weren't colored. And then they were like, "Oh, here's the color." And then they started animating, and they're like, "No, wait, here's the color." And the comics were just like trying to keep up. I don't know if they ever explained that in a story. Like maybe she dyed her hair or something. But I don't know. What do you think? I think she looks kind of cool as pink. I actually like pink Sally. I, I like Pink Sally too, I, but uh, I they do mention in the comic right in the, that she changed her hair color and they like make a joke about it, don't they? Oh, maybe you're right. I think you're right. Because uh, I, when I was reading yeah. it, they they make a little comment about it, but not super like uh, absurd. I was going to tell you your pictures. I don't know what happened to them, but they're all out of order. I don't understand. Try to just oh, let really? you know. Yeah. But, Are they grouped maybe by when I uploaded them? I don't know. Maybe. I'll have to fix it maybe. But you can continue. Sorry. Oh, that's fine. So we've got, uh, if you can put up that sketch pic- picture, it's um, it's what Michael Gallagher uh, roughed out. So Gallagher, this is actually from the foreword that he wrote for this um, compilation of stories. He talked about his creative process. So what he actually would do, he would write the stories. He wasn't the illustrator, but he would rough out the script in cartoon form. So essentially he would draw out the comic himself. And so uh, this image that's shown here is like a really rough sketch, but it basically looks like the final version of the first issue. So you can see that there. It, uh, It compares, I mean, pretty well. So it seems like he was working alongside uh, Scott Shaw to create something that really was in line with what Michael Gallagher was intending. Um, the editor actually agreed that this process was the best because the comic was actually making several stops in the approval process. So in this in this case with Sonic, Archie would see it, and then Sega would see it, and then Deke would see it. But I, I don't think Deke had much of a say in it. Um, 
but they all had they had some sort of input. Uh, Gallagher actually said his sketch, which we see there. He claims it's the very first Sonic the Hedgehog comic book art. I disagree because, as I mentioned, in uh, 1991 Superman comic, uh, you very clearly see Sonic the Hedgehog comic book art. So I'm sorry to burst Michael Gallagher's bubble, but he was not the first Sonic the Hedgehog artist, unfortunately. Um, his point man at Sega, I've never heard of this guy, Bob Harris. I'm assuming he was in charge of like uh, merch or marketing or something. Um, he gave some criticism, but it was described as constructive and helpful. And overall, uh, he was told that the team were on the right track. So Sega was happy with the process. And it, it seems like drawing Sonic as the story's unfolding really does work out well for them. Um, Gallagher noted that an ongoing comic book series can only go so far with characters who are given one-word descriptions. So, like, you know, we went through that list. A lot of them were, like, selfish, um, rebellious, childish. You know, that that kind of thing works for a few issues, but after a while you're going to have to have the characters grow. Um, thankfully, he really did feel like as he progressed with the, the issues, he got to know the characters more, and they started to kind of suggest to him what kind of stories he could tell. Um, The ingredients... So here's what I thought was really interesting is he laid out what the ingredients for a Sonic story was, specifically at this time in history, so those early issues. To him, um, you needed a conflict, some mystery, some action, subplots, uh, wordplay, which I think they really cranked up. There's a lot of jokes in these, like little puns and things. Uh, Exotic locations new heroes and new villains, wacky weapons, and then moving the spotlight to each character to give them relevance and, wherever possible, a moral at the end of the story. So um, me personally, as a longtime reader, I think this perfectly encapsulates the early years of Sonic the Hedgehog comics, not to talk about Penders too much, um, but I feel like Gallagher's description is simply not what Penders eventually turned the series into, despite the fact that Penders actually did write in these early 38 issues. It's just that he didn't... He wasn't really pushing his sort of agenda. He was kind of following that template. But interestingly enough, I do feel like Penders did some things right. Like, he did... He was able to, like, pick up story elements a few issues later and, like, reference them and kind of build on certain characters, which we'll get into once we start talking about some of the standout issues. Um, how, so how do you think later Sonic comics compare to these early issues? We discussed it a bit, but... Um, like, are you aware of like how Ian Flynn, for example, approaches a comic book as opposed to these early ones? I think Ian Flynn is more of like, um, I guess more of a IDW comic writer kind of where they like have longer stories and actual arcs and he content he has like a continuing story i think that's kind of what people expect from comics now um except for mm-hmm. these people like the early comics were very like episodic it felt like i was watching sonic boom or something like a saturday morning cartoon right where it was like part 1 part 2 the cliffhanger in the middle for the commercial and then you ended up and then they had the little shorts where it was more silly gags, basically. It was like uh, sketch comedy where I like that, you know, I, I posted that late night with Sonic thing. And then, uh, right. yeah, yeah. And then they would do the chili dog, how to do with chili dog early on. 
little things like that, I think, added a lot of uh, character, at least comic. You know, they do that uh, in Ian Flynn comics, too, you know, the little back things. But Ian's more of a, he has a, a bigger story with character arcs and stuff like that. Um, this one's are like random issue. Uh, w- one guy's jealous, so he gets in trouble, or it's a random uh, issue of something that Robonic came up with. You know, so <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Right, They're just right. different. You? Yeah, and I, I, I definitely agree. I think Ian Flynn can write those types of issues. Um, Ken Penders definitely can because he did. Yeah. But they they have their own style that I think fit comics either of their era or modern times like I don't think Ken Penders could make it in today's comics world I'm actually kind of surprised he lasted as long on the Sonic comics I and too. I am too yeah <laughs> and um, I just you know I, I think there's a special charm to them that is still relevant today like I still see kids comics that are written in this sort of um, style as as I mentioned, the Sonic Boom comics were the closest thing we had to these original Sonic comics in the modern era. Um, I want to talk now about the miniseries. So, miniseries issues. De- technically, it was issues zero through three, but we're going to talk about one through three here. So, Scott Shaw he actually departed after issue two. So, this guy's artwork. Um, I mean, I, I think it's very good. It's mm-hmm. very suitable for Sonic. It's a little American cartoony, but very expressive, very well done. He he departed, but he still did some the the final issues cover, uh, and he was replaced actually by, and I'm seeing here uh, Dave Minak, and his style it's similar. I would say. I mean, if you look, if you're watching the video here, I'm just holding up some images. It's similar, but I think it's a little more rough. Um, he's a lot more... He does a lot more shading, like little shaded lines. So, okay, I'm sorry. I showed a picture from Shaw. Now, if you jump over, this is the next issue. Looking at it, it's a little more sketchy. He likes to do a lot of little debris. He likes to do a lot of little details. Like, you're going to see not every piece of grass, but, like, little pieces of grass and grit and dirt and lines and, like... When he, Sonic jumps on a robot, there's, like, little pieces of, like, metal and plastic oh. and things flying up. It's it's different, but I really like it. Um, towards the end of this show, I'm actually going to show some original comic art from Dave Manak. And it's, it's really cool to see, you know, big and drawn. Um, I love his work. Um, and apparently uh, Archie did, too, because he remained on for quite a while with the Sonic series. Um, so after Scott Shaw departed, like I said, Dave Minak took over art duties. He worked really well with Gallagher because they both had time together working at Marvel on licensed comics. Uh, Minak was actually the lead writer on Star Wars Ewoks and Droids comics, which had a very long run. I think it ran for about 30 or 40 issues for Ewoks and I think only 10 or 13 for Droids. Um, other uh, staff on hand were Jorge, uh, Pes- uh, Pesico and Bill White, who served as inkers for the miniseries. Mm. It was very apparent early on that the team had a hit as Sonic surged in popularity and the comic sales were high. So immediately after the miniseries, Sonic got his own ongoing series and Gallagher ceased to be the only writer but continued to contribute stories. New writers included Angelo de 
oh man, I'm gonna butcher his name. And it's usually only the Japanese names we butcher on this show. Angelo Deserari, Mike Kanturovich, Ken Penders, Kent Taylor, and Rich Kozlowski, um, who also I believe did inking. Rich Kozlowski did. Um, uh, Michael Gallagher said his personal favorites that he created were the Tales miniseries, which introduced the Down Under Freedom Fighters, the 40 Fathom Freedom Fighters, and Crockbot, uh, the Sonic Quest miniseries, which was a tie-in with Sonic 2 and Sonic 3 and Knuckles, the Triple Trouble adaptation, issue number 25, which was his first team-up with Patrick Spaziente, and adapted Sonic CD, and then many specials. So it was very clear that um, Michael Gallagher kind of went on to become the specials and miniseries guy, whereas these other writers started to take more control of the ongoing comic. Um, at the time, specials and miniseries usually continued plot points uh, going on in the comics, but not to the level that they would later on. Um, you know, the, there was some connective tissue, but nothing was like must read. It wasn't like, oh man, I skipped that special about Sonic yeah. meaning Knuckles. Now I won't be able to follow. Um, you know, Mike, like Michael Gallagher, I have my own favorites from the early years of the comics, and I thought we would spend kind of the remainder of the show here just looking at some issues. There's 38 that I, I said we're going to talk about, but honestly, we're going to cover maybe half of them at best. So first up, issue one. This is obviously a very important issue. This was the first issue of the ongoing series. This was the first one I picked up. I have it sitting here next to me. Um, so when one of Robotnik's SWAT bots developed a mechanical plant named Crudzu, uh, a malevolent uh, robot-like plant with an affinity for water, he decides to modify, modify a burrow bot to plant its seeds within the Great Forest. Meanwhile, in Knothole, Antoine is depressed because Sally only pays attention to Sonic, and he decides to give her a bouquet of flowers. Unfortunately, he it does not end up going so well. Can Sonic get there in time to save him in the forest as well? So, I mean, as an issue one, it's clear that they're not trying to become an issue one. You could make this issue one like issue three, and you wouldn't notice. There's no real setup. There's no real origin story here. Sonic never no. meets the Freedom Fighters in the comics. They're just always a team. What do you think of that sort of way to kick things off? Like, wouldn't you expect more of an introduction? Or do you think that kind of works with this type of comic? Just do a story. I think it works for this type of comic. Because, uh, like, if you, when you're a kid, it's just you read the book and you're like, oh, this is part of the world and this is what we're going into. I don't think anyone ever questioned it or anything. And I think I think they really wanted uh, to continue the audience from the TV show, so they probably were uh, thinking that most people that were buying the comic probably watched the TV show, or at least knew about the TV right. show. I because I I don't I remember being a kid and I was like, you know, too young to be a fanboy, right? But like I remember like. <laughs> drawing, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog and making the little, like, uh, paper ornaments so you could put it on your Christmas tree by my, you know, just because of mm -hmm. the TV show, not even the game. It was just because I was watching the TV show in the morning. So it, I think that that was more, I don't know, the video game was obviously super popular, but I, I wonder if the TV show really sold it more than the, the video game. Because, I mean, like, back then not everybody was a gamer, you know what I mean? So, I don't know. Right. I think it works, though. What about you? Um, 
Yeah, I, I, I think it works too. I think if they make the first issue such a grand thing, um, they're kind of stepping on the toes of the cartoon series because the cartoon series is really what the comic is an adaptation of. And it's not the comic's place to be the setup. It's more a, a accompaniment to the cartoon. So the kids probably saw that first issue of the Saturday morning show and then they picked up the comic, assuming that that's how the release schedule worked. Um, issue four, if you bring that up here, this is a pretty big story just because it's the first one to feature Supersonic. And so the cover obviously does not sell that at all. In many cases, the cover does not um, tie in with any of the story inside. Like, Sonic doesn't clean chimneys in this issue. It's, if anything, it's more of a um, joke about how grim and dark comics were at this time. So this is the mm. all-new, all-different, grittier, darker Sonic the Hedgehog, where he's cleaning chimneys, so he got gritty and dark. Um, it's almost like a <laughs> Mad like Magazine... That. Yeah, and I I really like how, like, dirty he looks there. Um, And you'll see this often. Like, there's little word balloons on many of the covers, lots of jokes. It really is not, and I'm actually looking through my stack in front of me here. It's not until, like, issue... Man, they just keep going with these little, like, jokes. Like, issue 26 or 27, that they really kind of start phasing them out and just doing pictures. Um... I mean, it's it's fun, though. It's a little joke, a little gag on the cover, and there's some really great ones. But in this one, the big deal is that Supersonic has arrived, and he fights this thing. It's like a giant salamander called the Universe Salamander. It's a very strange story. Um, we have a screenshot here of it, and what I think is so cool is that, you know, they tie in with the games directly here, so it was very clear that Sega was giving them direction, they were playing the games, they knew how Supersonic came about, so they decided to do a little video game tie-in to the point where you're actually meant to, like, touch the the comic and play the game. (laughs) And I I think, again, here's kind of of a case of the comic doing the heavy lifting because the, the TV series never did this. The TV series never dipped this far into the games. It was much more of its own thing. And so it's almost like the the comics were acting as more of an adaptation of the video games than the TV show itself. Um, do you think that takes away from the storytelling, just doing a straight-up game adapt? Like, it's not even an adaptation. It's like a moment from the video games happening in the middle of the story. I don't... I, I, don't, I mean, I, I would say maybe, but then when you think about it, when you're a kid, you're like, I really like... Like, we never really saw that much uh, video games on TV growing up. Like, now anybody could go on Twitch and watch their favorite dude play a whole game for 16 hours, you know? But back then, it was like, right. I would watch movies sometimes just so I could get to see a little bit of video game clips. Or we, we'd watch those, like, terrible, like, <laughs> G4 TV shows so we could see a little clip of gameplay of a new game that's coming out. Now, you could go on Twitch and some guy gets it for gets it early and he gets to stream it early, so you get to watch him play it for you know whatever and donate and ask him questions. So like back right. then, having little references like this into your comics and stuff, I mean in the comics and other merch because they didn't do it in the TV show and it was something that I, I noticed as a kid. It's like the TMNT on cartoons have different villains than the movie ones, and the movies ones are different than the right. comics. So it's like white. Right. It's like, why isn't Bebop and Rocksteady in, in the new movie? Why do we have these two other babies or some, some 
wannabe bebops and rocksteady. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Right. I know what you mean. And you would get that, too, with Sonic. You would have Scratch and Grounder. But then in the Saturday morning show, you would have um, Cluck and Snively. And then in the video games, you would... He really didn't have any two henchmen until Sonic Colors came about with Orbot and Cubot. So, you know, it's in the. I mean, as we got older, it was obviously a case of different creative teams having different inklings. Like the the comic book team obviously was like, we like the games, let's reference them. Whereas the Saturday morning team was like, no, we have our own story we're telling. We are not going to bog things down with like Sega Genesis tie-ins. Um, me personally, mm. I like the way the comics work. Uh, coming up next here, we have issue six, which is another very blatant video game reference. It is, I, I think, the first straight-up adaptation in the Archie Sonic comics. Of course, they would reference events from Sonic 1 and Sonic 2, but here we are actually seeing Sonic the Hedgehog Spinball played out in comic book form. And what makes this unique is that the comics were kind of an adaptation of both the Saturday and the weekday cartoon. However, the weekday cartoon Adventures of Sonic the Hedgehog had its own Sonic Spinball episode. So it was kind of at this point I was like, wait a minute, so which which story happened? Because the video game has the story, the comic has the story, and the TV show has the story, and they're all different. And so this was kind of also the first time that the comics diverged from the source material that it was referencing. It was almost like, you know, it was making kids kind of realize that not not all, not all the same people were working on these things. Um, issue eight, you, you got to bring that though, one up. This one... I was going to say, yeah. before, before we go to the eight, I just want to make a big comment about his really cool scarf he has here. Surprised it hasn't become merch. Oh, yeah, go for it. It just looks nice, that's all. It reminds Sonic. me of Sega AM. Yeah, the one that he has on. Very slick. But oh, number yeah. eight. Yeah, the the joke is that it's a t- he's it's a comic book tie-in, and Sonic's wearing a tie. But oh, it's honestly, a tie. I like, Sorry, I, I thought it was a scarf. Tie. Sorry. No, yeah. I dig it, though. It kind of reminds me of when you saw Sonic's cool clothes in the OVA. Like, he, he has a style. Oh, yeah. That can't be beat. Um, <laughs> issue eight... Again, you know, kind of with that grittier, darker cover. This one, again, is poking fun at the comic book competition. We see Spider-Man, Batman, Wolverine, the Punisher, uh, Ghost Rider. I don't know whose foot that is kicking a bucket, but there's something going on there. And it's Sonic the Hedgehog leaves the competition in the dust. And this is actually a case where the, the cover actually references the story inside. So this one... I don't, I don't know if it's a personal favorite of mine, but it always stuck with me. In the story itself, Crabmeat, who is a badnik, is actually caught reading Sonic the Hedgehog comics by Dr. Robotnik. And Dr. Robotnik actually thinks, oh, okay, well, I should build super-powered robots to attack Sonic. So the whole issue has robots that are parodies of real superheroes. So there's Botman instead of Batman. And then things get really crazy if you want to bring up this scene. It's an Urkelbot. So it's... Oh, God. <laughs> um, that thing is yeah. scary. So it is scary. And it's... So what they were going to do is they were going to make a Wolverine, which is obviously a reference to X-Men, but instead they they made Wolverkel. 
And Wolf Urkel is a robot Urkel, which actually did exist on Family Matters. There was an Urkel bot. So I don't know if, if Sega did it first, but here we have Sonic meeting Urkelbot, who is voiced by Jaleel White, who also voices Sonic. And then on top of that, instead of Spawn, we have Spawn Mower. So it is spawn a spawn lawnmower. Like, how do you not oh love this? Oh my god, they were just great? going crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. And it's what like... I think is really funny too, there's yeah, there's a great joke here too. Do you see it? He goes, Bah, this isn't helping my image. Hmm, image, aha, just the super I need hero I need. Behold, Sonic, my ultimate new wave bot, the awesome spawn mower. Jesus, I'm surprised it? they did this kind of. Yeah, this is uh, this is pretty good. I wish they would do more of this in the new one, where they just like mock current uh, comic books and modern comics. Because I mean, Spawn during this time he was it was huge. It, it, like Spawn was yeah. like a phenomenon, so it would make sense to mock him. Well, believe it or not, they did a crossover with Spawn and other uh, Image comic characters. So. Yeah, Sonic gets around. Um, issue 9, bringing this one up. This one's a big deal uh, just because it is a character from Adventures of Sonic the Hedgehog uh, not only being adapted into the comics, but it was almost like a... I felt like a straight adaptation of the episode itself, but with the characters from the Saturday morning show worked in. So... After a thorough analysis of Sonic's profile, Robotnik builds the ultimate evil robot, the Pseudo-Sonic. Meanwhile, Sonic, out picking flowers for Sally, comes in contact with some poisoned sumac and blows up like a balloon. Um, And so if you've ever seen those Sonic cells of Sonic, like, really big, that's him blowing up like a balloon during the Pseudo-Sonic story in the cartoon. And so here's a case where they adapted the cartoon episode but worked in characters from not whole so it's a very it's a very strange mix and then of course pseudo sonic makes people think of metal sonic but metal sonic wasn't really a thing in the comics yet so i don't it's weird isn't it i don't know that's why i picked this one it's just it's strange yeah. and we have a a scene from the cartoon if you want to bring that up oh, like, uh, it's the same character be, before we go to that i was going to make a yeah. I was going to make a comment about the cover. The cover is actually uh, a reference, well, a reference to the Flash issue where there's two Flashes and they're both running next to a wall. Have you seen that cover? Mm. I Well, obviously I haven't because I didn't reference it, but yeah, that's cool. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's what the reference is here because it's supposed to be the first time that, uh, uh, I think it's Barry Allen, that he time travels to another universe and then uh, the other Flash from another world comes over and it's the first time I think DC did it. And it's it's very similar to this like uh, setup of a cover. But yeah, sorry. I'll <laughs> go on to the, to the next scene. That's really interesting. Um, is, yeah, so we just have a peek at the cartoon here. So you can see there very, very much a direct... Uh, inspiration and honestly at this point i think if we're if we're going to get into like canon stuff i feel like the archie comics exist with the saturday morning cartoon stories being a part of that canon and then it almost kind of overwrites adventures of sonic the hedgehog to bring those stories into the canon of the saturday morning show by including those characters 
which you know is the case here and then is the case with the Sonic Spinball one. So that's that's my own headcanon. Um, bringing up issue 11 here, um, I did want to note two things. So we were looking at these covers. Um, if you'll notice, there's a thing called the corner box. So if you look up there under the Archie Adventure series, you see like a little box and it says Tails Goes Undercover. Now, I don't know the mm. reason for the corner box. I think it's just part of the cover template. But early on, they would just put like stock art in there of, of Sonic like doing his little finger wave. But early on, they just started doing jokes. So it's almost like a little area for them to do um, like little, little gags or even have characters from the comics like talking to Sonic. So there's Rotor poking his head out and saying, chill out, Sonic, while Sonic gets like frozen. Um, another thing, too, if you look at this screenshot that we have up here, you see that big barcode in the corner there? These are the newsstand yeah. issues that we're looking at. And if you look at the comics that I have in my collection, there's no barcode. So these are subscriber covers. And it ran for a while. Which are so if worth you less, ever right? Wanna, mm-hmm. The subscriber ones? I was going to say, I think so. I think the newsstand ones with the barcodes. Because I've been selling comics lately. I've been trying to get rid of some of my old collection uh-huh. collectibles and... They said something about how like old Marvel comics used to have like either a you know Captain America or a barcode, and they're saying the barcode one is usually what collectors want. I don't, I don't know if there's a difference. It's the same thing though. It's it's hard to say though, but that's but that's a great point because as I was talking to you about this, I realized it's actually a great way to gauge to where you picked comics up. So, you know, I was talking about that first issue I have. It is a barcode issue. So I very clearly picked this issue up from a newsstand, whereas my issue 2 through issue 12 do not have any barcodes. So I was clearly uh, getting these in the mail. However, after issue um, 12, with issue 13, they started to put the barcode, but it says direct edition, which means sent directly to the subscribers. Mm. So I guess if you look at my collection, I technically have like an incomplete set of um but then again you have to wonder if the first issue was ever sent to subscribers because to become a subscriber you would have to buy the first issue so the question is is there a subscriber cover yeah. of sonic number one so you know it's it's these weird little quirks of sonic of comic collecting um but yeah looking at this issue 11 then um this is a big deal just because In this issue, the anti-Sonic appears. So it's the Freedom Fighters witness Robotnik dumping toxic waste into a river. Sonic tries taking a shortcut via the Cosmic Interstate, which is kind of like a world between worlds where Sonic can get to other dimensions and stuff, which actually plays a big part later in the comics. Um, But he winds up going to an alternate Mobius where Robotnik is a benevolent doctor and Sonic is the bad guy and he's part of a gang. And what the big deal here is that this evil Sonic is just like Sonic in a, in a like bad guy coat with uh, dark sunglasses. But this character actually, through a series of later appearances, would become green and receive a scar. And if you want to bring up this picture here, he becomes Scourge or Scourge, who is a, a kind of a fan favorite yeah. and also a character that Ian Flynn wrote a lot, a lot about. So. Honestly, I feel like this issue is really where things... He started to plant the seeds to tell these stories that would later pay off with characters going 
down the line. I mean, I don't even want to get into... I'll get into it pretty soon, but where the robo-robotnik goes from here. But it's just some... I mean, I, I honestly think it's actually very cool that there are these little, like, one-off, funny, jokey stories. But then you look at this character and you realize they have, like, a couple decades of history and become a green, evil Sonic. Like, that's kind of cool, isn't it? I don't know. Yeah. It, it makes these early issues actually a lot yeah. more interesting to me because seeds are being planted for stuff that's going to pay off, like, ten years down the line. Yeah, it's uh, one of those things where, like... They do this a lot in, like, American comics, right? Where they show a character and they're like, oh, yeah, 30 years later, this character is actually this character now. They came back as this person. And I like the idea of, like, alternative universes, very Flash-like. Um, I always wish that yeah. they, they would do this in the video game where it's like they kind of did it with Lost World, but it was kind of like it wasn't like he he went to a new version of, like, it's not like he showed up at this, like, new world and then in this world it's like sonic's world but it's different you know like here he was the bad guy right, right. so it would be sick to right. have like a world where like i don't know amy is the one that's actually the hero and sonic never existed and never, it was just a lazy <laughs> dude and then, yeah, that would be pretty uh interesting. right absolutely so, yeah. yeah yeah and you also get cases like this too where very early on these these fan favorite characters are introduced and you'd never even think it's them. And then now, like, I'm sure someone sold this on eBay saying, first appearance of Scourge the Hedgehog. Um, <laughs> you know, even though it's a completely different yeah. character. It also, I mean, we were talking about Archie first appearing in Pep number 22. And that's kind of funny, but you look back at these old issues and they're, like, introducing characters like Scourge the Hedgehog introduced in Sonic number 11. Like, that is just, it's kind of wacky that Sonic has such a history that you can go back to these early issues. And, and see these seeds being planted. Um, issue 13, if you want to bring that up, what I think, just interesting thing about this cover, first off, it is the first appearance of Knuckles. However, the cover itself does anything but promote Sonic and Knuckles. Instead, it's Sonic running a race. <laughs> and the other weird thing is these officials, now, you know, we haven't been showing too much of the comics here, but humans are a rarity in these early issues. In fact, I don't think you see any humans outside of Robotnik. And yet here on the cover, we have what I think is probably the first appearance of humans outside of Robotnik. Just these like two NASCAR <laughs> guys. I don't know. It's just kind of goofy. And um, they look very like, they look very archy comics, right? Like the art style. Oh, absolutely. They yeah. look like Heathcliff um, characters, and, don't they? Yeah. And, now you could calculate how fast Sonic is with the 2.6 seconds. If you're a, a smart kid, you're like, okay, it's a, how 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 far is that? You think a, a lap? Is that like a NASCAR race? How much is that? How long? How big is a speedway? Um, Daytona speedway Daytona lap you... distance. Daytona speedway. Um, it's a two and a half mile tri oval lap. At Daytona, Damn. so maybe so two and a half, two and a half miles in two and a, in two point six minutes is what is that? That's like a mile a second. So he's going yeah fast. <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you kids at fast. home, write in segavits at gmail dot com. Uh, <laughs> tell us how fast is Sonic? If that's the case, I'm not good at math. 
Um, but yeah, you can see here then, this next image, this is the first appearance of Knuckles the Echidna, and you see him stomping his foot down and then standing in the spotlight. Um, this issue is interesting because it's very clearly not an adaptation of Sonic and Knuckles. They actually kind of touch on that later on with a special issue, but it, it kind of... The, the issue itself is kind of like Sonic and Knuckles. Like, they go to the island and everything, but it's it's clear that they weren't taking, like, the Ian Flynn direction of, of treating the games as, like, canon. It was really, like, a very loose adaptation. I mean, here, it's it's kind of loose. You get to Sonic Adventure, and, like, it's just off-the-wall insane. Um, issue 19... So you like that the... Uh-huh. Before we get that, I just want to make a comment about how Knuckles' shoes is the first thing you see. So it's the Lego shoe, right? His iconic Lego mm-hmm. shoe. And it's farting. The shoe's yeah. farting right here on this page. <laughs> it's, it's, it's little little, little fart bubbles coming up. And he also doesn't have his Jamaican-ass accent. What's going on, man? You're, you're ridiculous. <laughs> okay. All right, Stop we'll this right now. Um, All right, we'll go to the next one. I'm sorry. <laughs> The next one is the is issue 19, the story in this one's Night of a Thousand Sonics. And this one's actually pretty big for a, a couple reasons. First off, um, you see that little, like, weird Sonic next to him with, like, a half a robot face? That's actually, like, the bad yes. guy in the comic. I don't know why he's standing with Sonic there. But there's other ones here. There's a Viking Sonic. You can hardly see him up in the corner. He's covered, but it's a, like, Buddy Holly like 1950s guitarist Sonic, um, and this this story Ooh, it takes place Space Sonic again Space Sonic Cowboy Sonic Mummy Sonic that's my favorite one. Um, a dimensional doorway has opened in the gray forest and out pops the Sonic Cyborg. After landing from the cosmic interstate, it seems like this dimension Doctor Robotnik turned the Freedom Fighters into cyborgs. But this was a mistake, and the Freedom Fighters became so powerful that they invaded Robotropolis. In an attempt to stop them, Robotnik roboticized himself and became the Robo-Robotnik. If he was evil before, now he's worse, and he set his sights on conquering all dimensions that exist. Thus, a mass recruitment of Sonic and bots begin as Sonic and the real Dr. Robotnik join forces in hopes of stopping Robo-Robotnik. (laughs) <laughs> so, Robo Robotnik then recruits Evil Sonic, if you remember him, to steal the giant's hand from the neutral zone, the key to opening giant Borg and taking... Like, it. it's insane. Like, this is probably the most epic issue of Archie Sonic. And who, you, who do you oh, think yeah. wrote this issue? Ken Can Pindy. you guess? No. Uh, was it Ken Pendy? tell you. It was Ken Penders. So, yeah, oh, this... I mean, I I feel like this is an important one for a few reasons. Number one, it, like, it really starts to bring back characters from canon. Um, number two, it's the very first Ken Pendersy story. Like, it's not his first story, but it's the first one to really feel like Ken Penders flexing his muscles. But the thing is, is it works. Like, it's a fun story. It utilizes... Like, it's only 19 issues in, and we're referencing evil Sonic from before... We're setting up things that are going to pay off later on. So, spoiler alert, Robo Robotnik. I'm going to see if you know this. All right, so here's some. let's do some Sonic trivia with George. 
Who does Robo Robotnik become later on in the Sonic comics? I don't know. I mean, um, 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 I don't know. Can you just let me know, please? Okay, so (laughs) Robo Robotnik, through a series of unfortunate events, turns into Dr. Eggman. The Dr. Eggman we know and love from Sonic Adventure onward, modern Eggman. So, I mean, off the top of my head, pretty much what happens is Robotnik from the Sonic comics, you know, this big fat guy with, like, the the crazy um, shirt shoulders. I don't know what he has. He dies. He dies. He's dead. He's gone. He dies for good. He never comes back. And what happens is Robo Robotnik's consciousness is uploaded into a backup robot body, and there is a room of different Robotnik bodies, and one of them is the Eggman we know and love. From then on, Robo-Robotnik is now Dr. Eggman. He is the new Robotnik in the comic book series moving forward, and then he reverse-roboticizes himself and becomes a human. So... I mean, I know this is a show covering kids' comics, but how fucked up is that? That's insane. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm <laughs> and like, who do we thank for that? We, Ken Penders. This... <laughs> thank you, sir. I mean, he he's writing like stories like Spider-Man <laughs> stories where villains are like uploading their memories to other people's bodies so they can live on. It's weird. It's very strange. Imagine being a kid and you're like... Uh, okay, <laughs> now you know multi-universe yeah. theory. You you know there's a uh, Wolverine hedgehog out there. Um, I don't know, it's just weird. Right, I mean, it's absolutely insane, and yet, as I describe it there, it's like the only good way to bring Robotnik back into the series after you kill him off for good. Like, it's just insane. Um, yeah. And then next up here, I just want to show this two-page spread from The Night of a Thousand Sonics. Um, like, look at this. This is ridiculous. There's Wizard Sonic. There's Boxer Sonic. <laughs> Did he do the Sonic. art, too? No, no. He, Ken Benders does do art, but not for this issue. Um, I see Wolverine Sonic, Hulk Sonic, Batman yeah. Sonic. Smoking Sonic. There's actually two Astronaut Sonics. Yeah. Oh, wait. Oh, no, I see. The first panel... It's not a spread, so the first panel's a zoom-in on the next scene, because Sonic's talking to the same guys, but... Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that happened. Anyway, <laughs> let's jump to issue 21. Um, I I kind of feel like this is the first Ken penders issue, because, to me, I never was a big fan of this story, um, which is kind of a sign of a bad Ken Penders story. Um, And pretty much, let me read you the description here, and you can tell me if you think this sounds like anything that's come before. So the Robotnik unleashes EVE, which stands for Exceptionally Versatile Evolvenoids, to capture Sonic. As Sonic manages to outsmart EVE, it simply adapts to another form to to compensate. Sonic lures it to Robotnik's headquarters, where, assuming self-conscious form... Eve determines that it is being held back by biological inheritance from Sonic and Robotnik, i.e. individual cells used in Eve's creation. So Eve toasts Robotnik, but thanks to some quick thinking by Sonic, Eve 
uh, travels out into space on a journey of self-actualization. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. What do you think of that? Um, that seems very much like he's trying to be super deep, I guess. Like, he wants to... Uh, I don't know, man. Ken Fenders is a strange dude. I don't understand him sometimes. Yeah. And then if you want to jump to the next slide, it gets even weirder. So... Eve actually came back way later. So issue number 128, Eve came back in the issue Eve of Destruction, which was during this uh, this long arc where Sonic was floating through space, basically. And which kind of reminds me of the Ninja Turtles where they were in space for a while. Do you remember those those stories? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, they did the whole space yeah. stuff, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so Sonic meets up with Eve again. Eve's, like, hyper-evolved. It's just... I mean, on one hand, it's, like, cool that they went back to Eve. On the other hand, it's very... It's a very Ken Penders y thing. Like, there's nothing Sonic about this to me. It just... It, it really feels like a concept that he always wanted to put into a comic. So he decided, hey, I'm working on Sonic. Might as well throw this in there. Um, thankfully, issue 25 bring that up. This is a personal favorite of mine. I got it sitting here. Let me find it. Because there's something special about my issue. Here it is. Oh, actually there isn't. Wait. I guess there isn't. I put it somewhere else. Anyway, (laughs) my issue number 25 was signed. And I don't know why I don't have the signed one sitting here. But I own two copies of it. So I own a signed and unsigned. But what's special about this one is they used foil ink so it's actually silver around the edges which is pretty sweet and again you know you see spaz there spaz i think this is one of his first covers oh no no he's he's done ones before but like with other artists this is the first very spazzy cover and then inside he does the story art too and it's just i i think it's a really cool issue um it's it's not a straight up adaptation of Sonic CD, but Amy Rose is finally introduced into the comics, even though she doesn't really show up much after this. Metal Sonic is, um, I mean, you've seen Spaz's art. What do you think about the guy's work? I I think he's really good. I think he's gotten a lot better. Way like we just tweeted the other day that he was doing the IDW variant, right? And that right. looks a lot. A lot like uh, more advanced. His art's gotten a lot better, obviously, over time. I was going to say, I'm I'm just like going crazy about how this is a foil cover, and it's only a dollar fifty. Yeah. Comics now are like four bucks, <laughs> and I've seen some go up to eight bucks. <laughs> right. As a as a modern collector, I'm like one fifty. Man, it, that was the. I mean, I I get it. Nineties money is way different than today's money, but. Damn, seeing DC Comics trying to go all the way up to eight, eight, like eight bucks on some issues, it's one fifty, man. I mean, that's crazy to me. Right, cheap. It's not bad. <laughs> it definitely yeah. is. Um, issues twenty seven and twenty eight. You can see these here. Um, <laughs> I like the sad tales. If you look at the newspaper oh, okay. one, there's like a crying tales photo there. Um, this one's kind of important just because <laughs> yeah. it's it was a two-parter and it was kind of a big story. So 
What happened years was, in this one, so it says, For years the Freedom Fighters have relied on sonic speed and confidence to get them through the worst situations, but where would they be without their quick-footed friend, or worse yet, if he were fighting for the other side? So in this dramatic two-part tale, Sonic turns on his friends and loses his memory and is tricked by Robotnik to find Knothole and give away its secret location. And so, you know, it was like, it was clear that they started treating Sonic more like a superhero here. It was less jokey. But what I think is really interesting is that you look at that part two cover, like, it's still like the the kitty, the kids comic art, but mm-hmm. it's a pretty, like, I, it, it clashes almost, you know what I mean? Like, it it's supposed to be f- funny, but it doesn't look funny. Like, what's going on here? Um... What do you think about that? Like, do you think that clashes for you? It, it seems weird, doesn't it? I, I think they were trying to, like, uh, mimic... I don't know if you've seen these, but, like, in the past, in the 70s, when they did the Superman comics, would it would be, like... It would be, like, this. they're trying to be funny, and they're trying to be kitty, but, like, the covers are, like, really strange. It would be, like, Superman trying to boil, like, uh, Nightwing or something, or Robin, and he'd be like, Batman, you're going crazy, you can't eat Robin, and and the kids are supposed to be like, what, what's this all about? And then they pick up the comic. I think this (laughs) is where they're trying to mimic, and it, it, I don't know, I just really love the way Sonic looks. He's so happy to watch the Freedom Fighters get destroyed. He's like, his face is like a kid. (laughs) Last slice of pizza for him, you know? But yeah, I like it. I, I, I like wanna, it personally because I wanna, it reminds me of the old. I want to point out too. The um, issue twenty seven cover was actually penciled by Ken Penders because if you read the the newspaper comic behind them, um, it mm-hmm. says writer Ken Penders reports I will pencil the cover of Sonic number twenty seven, and John De Agostino replies and I will ink your pencils and John I believe was another writer. So it was like they were having the writers illustrate the cover, which is kind of weird. Uh, I don't know. I don't think Penders is that Yeah, it's weird. the worst cover that we've seen, though. though. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, if you want to see a pretty sweet cover, let's skip to number issue 29. Look at that. So that's Spaz oh, going full-on Spaz for his covers. Um, I just, I really love the detail. Like, this is t- Princess Sally morphing into a robot. Um, you can see the characters looking behind the tube. They're a little, like, distorted. I think the colors look nice. Like, all in all, it's very much unlike, like, it seems like such, you know, issue 29. Look at number one compared to that. Like, it's very different. Sonic has become a very different comic, and it's almost yeah. like you can't go back. You can't go back to this like jokey style anymore. It just it doesn't work. And I think you know I don't know if it was issue twenty nine where they decided to do this switch, um, but it just I think they kind of decided here that Spaz should be their cover guy because it kind of matches the tone and direction that the series is going, just by se- telling stories that are a little more serious. Yeah. Even though when you go inside the issue. They're still jokey, you know. Um, and if you want to bring up the next picture here, we have Robot Sally. You see that gal? Oh, and yeah. I have here, so I'm going to show some of these off in a little bit, but I have that original art right here. So we can see... Touch it. Touch it. Smear uh, it. I, oh, I, no. I do touch it, actually. I don't wear gloves. I'm a bad guy. Um, 
but it's just cool. I've got it. Uh, Rich Kozlowski, I believe he inked these. He was selling them at a comic show, so he signed that there for me. Um, and yeah, so I think that's kind of cool. A little piece of history, Sonic history. And how much uh, you pay for that? The art was actually. Not much. So I bought these at comic shows back in the mid-90s when the comics were... I think they were actually probably... Man, I don't know what they were up to at this. So this was number 29. I think Sonic was still... They still had issues 25 for sale at their booth, so it was pretty... Probably in the mid-30s by this point. No, I'm going to correct myself. I think they were probably in the 60s um, because they had issue 50 art. For sale, but like, that's sweet, isn't it? It's the first appearance of Robot Sally, and I probably oh, got yeah. it for like thirty bucks. You know, nothing, cheap. Very um, good. And the the art for that was done by Art Mahini, who's actually like my least favorite, just because I always felt like his art kind of reminded did, me did of you tell children's him that? books. No, 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 I mean I don't hate it, but like you look at the art, it kind of reminds me of. Um, Oh man, who's that guy who does animation, but he's not Disney? He does his own thing. Um, Don Bluth, like it's got a very Don Bluth, like Robotnik's uh. very like doughy, and everyone's kind of plump. I don't know, um, but I, I picked that one up just because I knew Robot Sally it was kind of a big event, and it's cool in the margins. It says like Evil Sally, and it has notes about it. Um, and in this, that issue, too, it was a big deal because it was the first time a Freedom Fighter was successfully roboticized, which um, became a plot device later on in issue number 39. If you want to get up to issue 35 here, this one's pretty sweet. I like this cover. Um, so this one's kind of a big deal just because it, it introduces these things called the Ancient Walkers. So basically what happens is Sonic collects his one billionth ring and a mysterious ancient group, ancient group of people called the Ancient Walkers who were uh, originally appearing in the Tales miniseries take Sonic on a cosmic journey to learn about the secret of the rings and Chaos Emeralds. And by the end of it, Sonic has more questions than he does answers. But I, I always felt like this was a big deal issue just because they talk about the secrets of the rings and the emeralds. I felt like these dudes kind of reminded me of all of those um, totem poles you would see in Sonic 1. Like, it very clearly is picking up on some ancient culture in Sonic's world. Um, what do you think about that? Like, that concept as a story? If, if I was a kid and somebody in the playground told me, there's this comic book and there's ancient walkers, right? And Sonic, and I would be like, <laughs> oh, obviously the ancient walkers are Sonic's nemesis because Sonic hates walking. <laughs> Old people walking are the okay. slowest. Everyone knows. So that's what I would think. You're done. <laughs> of, You're course done. I'm, of course I'm an idiot. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to argue that one, but... Uh, as for that, I like the idea of the Secret of the Ring. This is a nice prequel to the Secret of the Ring, Ring on the Wii, obviously, right? Oh, right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> as far as that, they have. Um, I like the ancient look. Obviously, it's pretty good. Like I agree with you. It does go with the old uh, Genesis uh, art. Yeah, absolutely. And I just I love the artwork inside too. You can see a panel here. So this is. 
Um, the first appearance of Robotnik's um, like wrecking ball machine, I don't think it was ever within the comics until this issue. And the reason, again, why I bring up this specific and you have art, art is, and this is probably my favorite, Fucking I have this page. So you can see here it's Sonic um, with the rings being absorbed into the zone, the wrecking ball, and then Sonic collecting his ring. And then, you know, I've got the signature there again. And it goes even further. I actually just recently, uh, a couple months ago, picked up more original art from this issue. So these are from Barry Grossman, who was the colorist. And what they would do is they would scan these big issues in to the smaller size, almost like... It's almost comic-sized, I think. Maybe a little smaller. Yeah, you can see that there. It's a little smaller than Mm. the comic. And what he would do is he would actually go through with like nice markers and color these. So this is all hand colored and this would get sent to the, you know, like the printer that would actually use I think computers to color these um and make them match what you would see here. And it's just it's really beautiful work like you hmm. you can see on the video like he would color the rings multiple colors to give them a little bit of a shine. Um you can see there's a Lake of Chaos Emeralds there, green emeralds. And then on another one, you can see a completely different color scheme. It's almost like a special stage background there. It, it's crazy to me that like that he shrunk it to color it. That's crazy to me. I guess just to use less ink, you know? Like if you're going to yeah. do it, you have to do it at a size that... They can read. And then also he would, um, in pencil, reference every single color. So every single color has a print equivalent. So he would tell them what kind to use. And often he would just draw right on top of it. But, yeah, it's just, it's really, really nicely done. And I did not spend much on these. I think I was getting these for like 10 bucks a page maybe, if less. Um, and I have more too that I'll that show stuff off pretty That belongs in your museum. Well, that's the thing. Um, I, I saw him posting these and I bought up as many as I could, but there's still some for sale. They're a little more expensive now. I checked his, his sale history. Thankfully, he never sold the one that I have the, the inks of. Otherwise, I'd be kicking myself because it would be so cool to have like the final comic, the color guide, and then the, the inks, like the entire process. Maybe someday it'll show up, but oh yeah, I did want to wrap things up here at least for this original era of Sonic Comics with issue number thirty-eight. And issue thirty-eight, I mean, there's nothing too special about it. They're coming off uh, from a victory at Robotropolis for an earthquake. They're enjoying a routine mission. Uh, Freak lightning bolt zaps Sonic and causes him to lose his speed, which seems to happen every other issue. And then the Freedom Fighters try to manage without Sonic's powers and find some Sonic substitutes. It's it's kind of your basic issue. Um, but then when issue 39 comes about, I really feel like it was a change, maybe for the better, for the series. And you can see that here, issue 39, it says Mecha Madness starts here. And this was when I feel like Ken Penders really started laying the foundation for ongoing arcs and setting up for what would eventually become Endgame, which was leading up to issue 50. Um, 
there was stuff going on here. Sonic gets roboticized. That's what you're seeing on the cover. Um, and then there was an issue where Knuckles fights him, and that was a special issue called Mecha Madness. It was, I mean, I think Spaz did some of his best art in this era. I think Ken Penders did some of his best plotting, which I think, you know, I'm, I don't hate the guy. I think he did some great work. But it's it's really the end of an era, too, because you're not going to see stories where Sonic's, like, sniffing flowers and he gets like bloated you know or um characters seem to have a lot more menace to them it used to be they would share a scene with robotnik and then like he would just let them walk away and now it's like if you're in the same room with robotnik he's gonna like pull a gun and shoot you in the head you know it's like he's a scary dude now um so that kind of at least you know in terms of talking about this the comics wraps things up um what do you think about that? What do you, what do you think about that transition? Did it seem? I mean, you haven't read them all, but just going through these with Mm-mm. me, do you kind of see how it changed into what it became? Yeah, I mean, they got contenders, and he's he's a little out there, right? The guy is eccentric. The guy has a mustache. The guy is better <laughs> than us, obviously. I mean, he. I mean, we didn't write any right. Sonic issues, so. Mad respect for the guy. I think it's funny that all the fans troll him and they think he's like the worst thing ever. Um, I think parts of him and aspects of the man are are bad, like taking stuff a little too seriously. But like you said, obviously there's fans also that liked his early plotting. I think he fell off the wagon after a while and it was time for him to move on. But like like you said, you enjoyed the early comics and that's always going to be part of his legacy, right? Maybe in 50 years, when Absolutely. people look, look back at these comics, they're going to forget the crazy Kim Benders era where he sued Sega <laughs> and didn't let anyone use the knuckles with the fedora, you know? Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, he, he had his good moments, and we'll revisit Ken, I don't know, maybe in the next few months we'll do a part two to this. But in the meantime, I just want to give a shout-out to Michael Gallagher in the original staff of the Sonic the Hedgehog comics. I I mean, I don't think I would be the big Sonic fan that I am without these as evidenced by all the <laughs> all the stuff that I would buy up from uh, former artists and staffers. Um, so to close things out, I just wanted to go through a few more pieces of original art. Not too much here, but um, just some more uh, of those color guides. So these are from Issue number 34, which we did not touch on, but just some cool stuff. I picked this one up just because it's Robotnik in front of a SWAT bot army, and just the like detail that he went into for every single one I thought was kind of impressive. And then we've got some cool stuff here going on with uh, Sonic's Uncle Chuck. They're getting electrocuted. I thought there was some co- Uncle cool Chuck. color work there. Yeah. When's Uncle Chuck? He's and, basically um, he's like the Sopranos. He's like Uncle. What's his name? Is uh, Uncle from uh, the Sopranos? That's it. Uncle Chuck. Uncle Uncle Junior. Yeah, June. Uncle Junior. Uncle the best character. <laughs> um, there's also a bit of behind the scenes here. So this is a fan art, and then what he would do Uh-oh. in this case is they would scan in the fan art, and then he would do the color guy. So he was actually coloring kids' fan art, and then he would overlay on top of it Jesus. The, um, the printer stuff 
And then I thought these were cool. So the letter section is called Sonic Grams. And again, yeah. like no one was buying this. This was kind of an unpopular item on Barry Grossman's eBay page, but I thought it was really cool just to get a look at the how you would do a color guide for a letters page. And there's a little drawing here. So they would do these things called off-panel, and they ran for quite a long time, actually. And it was like little behind-the-scenes stories, and typically done in like the Archie art style. And it would like be in-jokes with the staff, commenting on you know fans or just inter-office politics. There's also something really cool here on the second page of the art. So you can see here, there's just a nice little like Knuckles clip art there that they they colored. And then this is interesting. Even though I don't own the cover for issue 35, I have the coming soon. So there's the cover for the issue I own some art for. So, you know, it's just, it's a cool little piece of history to have. And all you kids at home can be happy that I own it and not someone who would never show it to you. <laughs> not you. Sitting on oh. it. Oh. <laughs> They're I probably going to be I thinking to give, themselves, give, I wish I, I owned it. Visually give. Well, you know, maybe when Why I die, I I'll sell it, it to you. That's what... Wait, I'd be dead. <laughs> yeah, that would be, be impossible. But but I don't want to close this episode out on me dying. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I don't really have any final thoughts here. I guess I'd just say go out, check these out. There aren't any printed compilations, unfortunately. So pirate them. Like, I hate suggesting that but that's the only way you're going to find them unless you go out and buy like reprints the best reprints though that do exist are i think the sonic archives they never covered the whole issues though and it's it's a headache to even try to explain how many versions of like reprints there are there's no way you're ever going to get reprints of the whole series so hopefully idw steps up um is there anything you wanted to say, George, before we wrap things up and close the comic book on gonna be, Sonic the Early Years? I was going to say that I'm going to be talking, doing the next episode for the Sonic Month since it's 30th anniversary. We're going to be covering Sonic Adventure 2. So if you guys have any Holy crap. memories of Sonic Adventure 2, it'd probably be pretty good to uh, go on our Patreon and... Uh, donate a, a couple bucks our way and then you could have your memories in the end of the episode and I don't know if you guys pay more maybe we, we could put them in the front of the episode I don't know well, we could talk about it but Sonic Adventure 2 is the next game we're going to be talking about wow. uh, we also did Sonic Adventure 1 already so if you guys want to check out that episode it's in our archive somewhere um, and that's it that's all I have to say all right, and then, of course, if you are a backer at any level, you can leave your memories um, and then have them read at the end of the show. A little something special on this one. So longtime uh, Patreon supporter and episode picker Daniel messaged me, and he said, can I leave a voicemail? And I said, well, you can, but keep it short. And he sent me, I told him to send me a minute, and he sent me six I told him I'd edit it down. I never got around to editing it down. So you know what? As a little treat to him, I'm going to play his voicemail in full at the end of the show. So if you want to stick around and listen to it, you can do that. We also have written memories from Nicholas Schaefer, who came in just under the wire. And he had this to say. 
I didn't have a comic store growing up, but our grocery store did carry Archie Comics, and it was so exciting to see Sad AM Cass get a comic. Mind you, at this point, I did not own a Genesis, just a copy of Sonic 3. The cartoons and comics and that game manual are what my love of Sonic are built on. I especially liked the Death Egg Saga as well as Mecha Madness. And now to wrap things up, let's uh, let's pop in the cassette tape and play Daniel's final thoughts. Hey there, George and Barry. Uh, thanks again for letting me do this. Um, I'm trying to keep this as short as I can. And uh, please, um, if you want to, you can edit this recording however you, you'd like to if you have enough time to do that. Um, but I'll try to keep it short. Okay, so um, thanks again, George and Barry, for letting me express my voice about my memories. Um, I just wanted to say that for the Sonic Archie comic universe, it's probably my favorite universe in the Sonic like franchise. Maybe next to the games, obviously. Um, I know at times it can be a little bizarre and weird and like kind of cringy at times. But what they did for this universe was really, really, like, out of the unexpected. Like, it's crazy how much lore and depth the Sonic Archie comics have and how much they put into it. They didn't need to put as much as they did into it. But I specifically and remember when I was, like, I think I was nine. I was nine years old when I found my first issue. And this has nothing to do with the first 15 issues, unfortunately, which I know you guys are heavily focusing on that in this video but, um, or in this podcast episode. But I, I saw it at a grocery store when I was in Elk Rapid in the Elk Rapids area here in Michigan um, with my parents, and it was some random issue on the front cover. Sonic was like in like a pool of water with his head above water, I think. I, I don't remember which issue number it was, but it was somewhere in the 150s or 140s. And it was um, I remember there was like these weird aliens that came in in, in the same issue. Uh, they were like these giant purple tentacle alien octopus creatures. But this is the first time I think I ever saw the Freedom Fires. I saw Sally, Antoine, Rotor. Bunny, all these random characters in this comic, and I'm like, who are these guys? Why are they in the games and stuff? Who, what's going on here? And so it opened up, and it opened up a whole new world for Sonic Comics for me. Um, it was either that when I first saw the characters, or it was Sonic setting M. I remember when my parents, uh, one evening, uh, I wanted to see the Sonic movie, and I was hoping, you know, me and my dad. He was gonna go rent it for me from Blockbuster one night, and he came back with like a, an episode compilation of Sonic Stadium instead. So I watched that, and I was like, "This isn't the Sonic movie, but this is interesting." I, I don't remember when I first first saw the, the Freedom Fire specifically, the um, Sonic Archie comic characters. It might have been um, from the comics, it might have been from the show, it might have been online. I don't know. But my point is, is that it opened up this whole new world, and then I just got really into the comics. Um, I tried to after that. I don't have every issue, but I have like random issues. I have most of the archives. But yeah, issues 1 through 15 were kind of like, you know, they were more lighthearted, a little corny. I, I'm not a big fan of the writing, I'm sorry. It's kind of like the same, to me, it's like the same kind of writing as like the Ken and Pontat writing that we had in Sonic Colors, Lost World Forces. But, but I will say that the Archie comics definitely did their jokes better. I think their jokes are actually a lot like, you know, more fun. Than what Kinapotact gave us, like you know, they had like their their jokes are very 90s culture at times. But that you know, if you grew up in the era, if you understand the era, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but yeah, I, I think for the most part, you know, it's fine. But I'm a fan of like when things got more serious. It's unfortunate Ken Penders turned out to be the person that he is. But you know, I'm not sure how responsible he is for like Sonic being the Sonic comics being as big as they were. But I know that he 
definitely had a big hand in like issues 25 to, issues 25 to 50 those are some of my favorite comics i mean issue 50 is probably my favorite sonic comic ever i know that ending bit became a bit of a meme now but i i i loved the sonic versus robotic fight that was a big freaking deal to me when i first saw that that was so epic and just it was just so right like just the way that was and it blew my mind i was like i think i want to say i was like 16 or 17 I, w I know i wasn't too young when i saw that but i was still a teen when i saw that um i just saw the issue i think somewhere out when me and my parents were on a trip um i picked it up i think it was in chicago when i saw this issue but yeah i i love the comics I, i'm just trying to get us get out some highlights of, like big impactful moments um you know, I remember when I first saw Scourge and Enerjack, and they're a big deal, and Ix's Nogus. What an incredible villain of a character. Oh my god. And Mammoth Magal. What, what a, he's a big deal. And I'm telling you. Like, there's so many great characters, so much expansive lore and history and everything. And it's a shame that this universe is just kind of gone now and it never got a proper closure. And hopefully... Actually, I think it kind of did. I think the fans kind of finished it. So, never mind, actually. But, yeah, um, I love the comics. They've always meant meant a lot to me. And I'm just really happy to see that we still have some former Sonic comics going on today with IDW. So, that that's great. That's great. So, And I love that it's a sequel to the games. And I'm really hoping we get to see Tangle and Whisper in, like, the next Sonic game, which... Uh, seeing what it is, we might not, and that's kind of unfortunate because it should be a sequel to the comics and forces. Forces in the comics, it should be, but we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. But yeah, guys, thanks for listening. I'm sorry this was a little bit longer than maybe you're hoping, but thanks again for letting me share my memories. And the Sonic comics, they just they mean so much to me, and I cannot wait to share them with my kid when she's like a little bit older and uh, whatnot. But yeah, you know, it's a big universe. So with that being said. Long live Sonic Comics in some kind of way, shape, or form. And keep on reading, guys. Thanks again.